Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show 121. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. How is everyone? I hope everyone is. Come on, after three. Fine and dandy. Yes. Right, today's show. Today's show is going to be slightly different in the way that this show is all about getting a message out. Getting a message out to us, everyone, the listeners, but even further. Just expand it to everyone out there on the internet and everything. Today's show, and it's come about rather kind of suddenly and rather kind of quickly, and things are just happening so much about trying to get this message out. What is the message? The message is get Starship Sofa nominated for a Hugo Award. You know, I can just hear people <laughs> sitting down, you know, like with the papers, you know, like you kind of see that image. Joyce? Joyce? Did he say they're going for the Hugo? Bloody hell. <laughs> Starship Sofa going to try for a Hugo. <laughs> well, apparently, now I just found this out. There was a post on the forums by Amy H. Sturgis. And Amy kind of knows all the kind of wranglings and everything like that. Keeps an eye on things. I just missed it. You know what I mean? Talk about that. And I just kind of missed it. But Amy said, you know, there's been like a lot of talk about getting a podcast nominated, specifically Starship Sova for a Hugo Award. And I was like, what? You, wow. And then it's just, you know what I'm like? Do you know what I mean? Like a bloody dog in heat. <laughs> Whoa, God. So rallied round the troop, you know what I mean? And like the, the troop, everyone, Starship Sofa. And like, why not? Why not try and get Starship Sofa nominated for a Hugo Award? You know what I mean? Come on, we deserve it. Do you know what I mean? So I got Amy, she, I got Amy to kind of write an article, do you know what I mean? And put it on a website. And, you know, things have kind of snowballed from then. And I've got Amy to kind of, actually, Amy's going to do a guest editorial all about, you know, what's happening. And then, you know, I can't, like I say, I've roped in people all over. All over. Trust us, all over. And that's why this show, we're going to, again, we're going to rope you all in to kind of help spread the word. And I've got Matt, and there's another fact article coming up as well. I've got Matt Sanborn-Smith. You know, Matt, will you write me? Because Matt, you know, he was kind of instrumental in, in getting that kind of money, that kind of huge amount of money for Spire and Jeannie Robinson. I says, Matt... Get, you know, write an article, and Matt's just wrote this article, which is excellent. You know, it, it kind of, honestly, he sums up everything about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, what Starship Sover is. And then, I went over to Larry, you know, as well, and I says, Larry, will you write us something? And well, actually, Larry put a, a kind of a post in, in the forums, just following on from Amy's post, you know. And Larry sums it up a great, you know, from another kind of angle. 
And I'm going to get Larry's audio for this and play this next week as well, just so you can have a listen to why, you know, and there's some, like you say, great reasons why Starship Sova should get a Hugo. Do you know what I mean? We kind of deserve it. <laughs> Honestly, when you, you know what I mean? It's just, you think about it and you think, you know, why not? Amy's going to explain how this has all come about. But the only thing is, Amy, when we kind of re- sat down and I says, Amy, can you record this little article for us? Amy's just com- main computer is just getting a virus. And she was on this kind of laptop. And I had to phone her up on Skype and record it like that. And we had a few echo problems and everything. So I've, as best I can, I've tweaked the sound. So, you know, it's a little bit kind of ropey, but that's it's normally not like that with Amy. So this is the show, do you know what I mean? It's like you say, getting the word out about Starship Sova up for nomination. Because no one knows that podcasts are eligible for the Hugo Awards. But I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in the show today. We have, like I say, the guest editorial by Amy H. Sturgis. We have... A cracking story, The Gambler, by Paolo Bajiglubi, which is just fantastic. Then we have Matt Sanborn-Smith with his kind of take on why Starship Sova deserves a Hugo. So everyone, the campaign starts now. Let people know about Starship Sova. I'm going to hand you over to Amy H. Sturgis. Hello, everyone. The Hugo Awards are special in the world of science fiction because they are made by, determined by, and administered by the fans. Of course, as you probably know, the Hugo Awards are named after Hugo Gernsback, the founder of the pioneering science fiction magazine Amazing Stories, and the man who coined the term scientific fiction, which would later become science fiction. The Hugo Awards have been presented every year since 1955, so they've been around a long time. The nominees and winners are chosen by members of the World Science Fiction Society, that is, people who are supporting or attending the annual World Science Fiction Convention, or Worldcon. Technically speaking, electronic publications have always been eligible for the Hugos. But last year, 2009, brought two new and, I think, really important developments for those of us who support new media. First of all, the audiobook Metatropolis, which was written by Joseph E. Lake Jr., Tobias Bakel, Elizabeth Baer, John Scalzi, and Carl Schroeder, and edited by John Scalzi, was nominated for Hugo in the Best Dramatic Presentation Long-Form Category. This was a first for a straight-to-audio production. Metatropolis did not start out as a hard-copy book. It went directly to the audio format through Audible, so that was unusual. And, of course, it's unusual that it was considered best dramatic presentation for the purposes of nomination. Very exciting. Um, Last year, I was on the podcasting panel at Worldcon with Tobias Bekel, one of the authors, And I remember that this was really big news that everybody was very excited about because this was a precedent-setting nomination, that Metatropolis was recognized in this way. And we all hoped that that would open the door then for other sorts of audio productions to be recognized by the Hugos. Another important thing that happened last year was that the World Science Fiction Society business meeting ratified a constitutional amendment that added the words or the equivalent in other media 
to various Hugo Award category definitions. In other words, it formally acknowledged what de facto had always been the case, that is, that electronic publications were eligible for the Hugo Awards for science fiction and fantasy. Well, recently I was really excited to see a thread in the Hugo Recommend Live Journal community, which is all about people suggesting great books they've read or films they've seen that deserve nomination for the Hugo Awards. But this thread that I saw was talking about the eligibility of podcasts for the 2010 Hugos. And the case that was brought up was Starship Sofa. Yay, team! The consensus seemed to be that uh, if a podcast such as Starship Sofa were nominated for a Hugo, probably Best Fanzine would be the best category for the nomination. But no one really knows because no podcast has ever received sufficient nominations to make the ballot. Since this discussion started, there's been increasing discussion at John Scalzi's blog, where he has called for science fiction award suggestions, specifically recommendations for the Hugo Awards. And once again, Starship Sofa has been mentioned over and over again. So if you're, like me, a member of the World Science Fiction Society, and you plan on participating in the Hugo Awards nominations, which are open now, I believe the cutoff date is March 13th. It's a fantastic time to help raise the issue of podcast eligibility in the Hugos. What category would podcasts fall under? Open the door, perhaps in the same way that Metatropolis opened the door, um, to raise awareness of electronic media and certainly, in particular, audio media for science fiction fantasy audiences. So think about that when you're looking at nominations, um, of course. I would suggest Starship Sofa as a great as a great nomination. But one way or the other, it's an interesting issue that really brings in the whole podcasting community. And it's exciting, I think, to be here at a time when new media is being discussed this way and honored this way by uh, really coming to the table for awards as major as the Hugos. So... There will be links to show you where these conversations are being held if you'd like to follow up on those and see what people are saying and maybe chime in with your own two cents. But again, I'd say it's an exciting time to be a science fiction fantasy fan and it's an exciting time to be supporting podcasts. So everything's come about about this kind of wordings being changed in other media, which is like, yes. And you know what, what would be fantastic is... To be the, I'm not saying to, to be the first, to be the best kind of thing, but you know, if Starship Sofa just was able to get on the kind of ballot, you know, the kind of the last five, I think it is, then you know, everyone knows from then on, podcasts are eligible. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not joking when I kind of say this. I think now podcasts are kind of vital to the infrastructure of science fiction, to any genre. Do you know whatever the kind of deal in? Do you know what I mean? We've got some nice kind of download figures, but there's but there's other podcasts out there. You know what I mean? Twenty four thousand escape pod, and there's no you know word of a lie there. We'll play a story, and like I say, this story that's coming up by Paolo Bajaglubi, I will get emails from people that will say, you know, I've never heard of Paolo Bajaglubi. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to go over and check out his site, and it's a direct result. 
podcasts are putting money in writers' pockets, and that's what we want. But it's going to be, on, and this is the kind of the main thing as well, it is such, such an uphill struggle. Do you know what I mean? Just to kind of get people to recognise that Starship Sova is eligible for, you know, the kind of best fanzine. This is the kind of the rules for voting. And I'll read them out word for word. This is from the kind of the HugoAwards.org site. To vote on the final ballot, you must be a supporting or attending member of AussieCon 4. You do not need to attend Worldcon in order to participate in the Hugo Awards. A supporting membership will be sufficient to make you a member of the World Science Fiction Society and get you voting rights for both the nomination stage and the final ballot. A supporting membership costs 70 Australian dollars or 50 US dollars. Now, the nomination round, this is what the Hugo says. This is not the final ballot. This is the nomination round. Nominations for the 2010 Hugo Award are open to anyone who was a member of Anticipation or who is a member of AussieCon 4. Only members of the current Worldcon are eligible to vote on the final ballot. So everyone who went last year can vote in the nomination round, but it's only really those who are supporting members or who are going to AussieCon this year can actually vote on the final ballot. Like I said, this is a massive uphill struggle. Are we up to it? But I know we've had some people here who have kind of listened to this show from the very beginning. Do you know what I mean? And that's amazing. And I think we all deserve to kind of at least get a chance and get a stab at, you know, being in this running for a Hugo Award because it's all of our work. You know, and I'm talking about just listening to the show, keeping, you know, keeping me going, knowing that the kind of audience figures are there, is that's been immense. Every email that everyone sent us saying, Tony, good show, that has kept me on the track. That's kept me going. We, you know, this show is ours. It's not mine. Do you know what I mean? I would honestly... I probably would have packed in when I kind of fell down. You know, that was a real good point there when I kind of knocked, <laughs> knocked myself out a few years ago. I could have quite easily, do you know what I mean? That was it. Leave it away. But honestly, I didn't. Do you know what I mean? I didn't want to. It was just, you meet and you get to know so many people. And it's just like I say, this is my little world now. You know, and I hope it is for you as well. I hope it is like this here, once a week meeting place where we can kind of just get together and just listen to, you know, some great stories. But just, I know this is kind of a bit of a cliche, but it is, it's like a family community, do you know? And that's what's so special about Starship Sova. And if is that not a fanzine? Do you know what I mean? Think, there you go. Is that not what we're trying to get there? So we need to get this kind of message out that Starship Sova is eligible for a Hugo Award for Best Fanzine. And if anyone's gone or has went last year to Worldcon, you know, you can kind of vote. That's it. Get your vote in. Get it for Best Fanzine Starship Sova. There was even talk in other threads on the internet of even putting the Sofa Dot show up for award for, I think it was other Best Other Related Work. Do you know what I mean? So, why not? So now, though, is main fiction time. And this is why Starship Sova, I think, is as good as it is. Because we can get stories like this. And, you know, I'm so grateful to the writers letting Starship Sova. And that's how it comes. You know, it wouldn't come about by any other way. They've been so kind. We've got The Gambler by Paolo Bajiglubi. And Paolo is hopefully tipped as well to be, you know, get a Hugo Award with his Wind Up Girl story. First novel out, and like I say, there's been loads of great reviews about this. So again, if you've 
been last year to World Con? Are you going this year? There's Paolo Bajaglubi's wind-up girl, worth a, a vote. I'll give you some little kind of blurbs that's been said about, or raves that's been said about wind-up girl by Paolo. Publishers Weekly says, Complex, literate and intensely felt tale, which recalls both William Gibson and Ian MacDonald at their very best. Clearly one of the best science fiction novels of the year. SF Signal give it 5 out of 5 stars. Disturbing, beautiful, fast-paced, exciting. Sci-Fi Wire says, Extraordinary, virtuosa, shock immersion rendering of a transformed world. IO9 says, It's rare to find a writer who can create such well-shaped characters while also building a weird new future world. Like I say, Paolo's book there, Wind Up Girls, tipped to be in the kind of Hugo's as well, so fingers crossed. The story is narrated by first-class narrator Jeff Midchelli. Jeff, if you remember, did the Oral Delights Kathleen Ann Goonan story, Memory Dog, which was just like a fantastic narration. And that's, again, another reason why, you know, Starship Sofa, we have like a body of people that are kind of helping out, you know, all free. Do you know what I mean? All their time and energy is donated free to kind of make Starship Sofa what it is today. And, you know, Jeff and myself are just one little example of that. You know, but I'm so glad Jeff Mancelli kind of just dropped us an email and offered these services. Jeff, this is a fantastic narration. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present The Gambler by Paolo Bacigalupi. My father was a gambler. He believed in the workings of karma and luck. He hunted for lucky numbers on license plates and bet on lotteries and fighting roosters. Looking back, I think perhaps he was not a large man, but when he took me to the Muay Thai fights, I thought him so. He would bet, and he would win, and laugh and drink lao lao with his friends, and they all seemed so large. In the heat trip of Vientiane, he was a lucky ghost, walking the Miroshin streets in the darkness. Everything for my father was a gamble. Roulette and blackjack, new rice variants and the arrival of the monsoons. When the pretender monarch Kam Singh announced his new Lao kingdom, my father gambled on civil disobedience. He bet on the teachings of Mr. Henry David Thoreau and on whisper sheets posted on lampposts. He bet on saffron-robed monks marching in protest and on the hidden humanity of the soldiers with their well-oiled AK-47s and their mirrored helmets. My father was a gambler, but my mother was not. While he wrote letters to the editor that brought the secret police to our door, she made plans for escape. The old Lao Democratic Republic collapsed, and the new Lao Kingdom blossomed with tanks on the avenues and tuk-tuks burning on the street corners. Fatat Luang's shining old chetty collapsed under the shelling, and I rode away on a UN evacuation helicopter under the care of kind Mrs. Yamaguchi. From the open doors of the helicopter, we watched smoke columns rise over the city like Nagas coiling. We crossed the brown ribbon of the Mekong with its jeweled belt of burning cars on the Friendship Bridge. I remember a Mercedes floating in the water, like a paper boat on the Loic Ratong, burning despite the water all around. Afterward, there was silence from the land of a million elephants, a void into which light and Skype calls and email disappeared. The roads were blocked. The telecoms died. A black hole opened where my country had once stood. Sometimes, when I wake up in the night to the swish and honk of Los Angeles traffic, 
The confusing polygot of dozens of countries and cultures all pressed together in this American melting pot. I stand at my window and look down a boulevard full of red lights, where it is not safe to walk alone at night, and yet everyone obeys the traffic signals. I look down on the brash and noisy Americans in their many hues, and remember my parents. My father, who cared too much to let me live under the self-declared monarchy, and my mother, who would not let me die as a consequence. I lean against the window and cry with relief and loss. Every week I go to temple and pray for them, light incense and make a triple bow to Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and pray that they may have a good rebirth. And then I step into the light and noise and vibrancy of America. My colleagues' faces flicker gray and pale in the light of their computers and tablets. The tap of their keyboards fills the newsroom as they pass content down the workflow chain, and then, with a final keystroke and an obeisance to the publish button, they hurl it onto the net. In the maelstrom, their work flares, tagged with site location, content tags, and social poke data. Blooms of color, codes for media conglomerates, shades of blue and Mickey Mouse ears for Disney Bertelsmann, a red-rimmed pair of rainbow O's for Google's AOL News, Fox News Corp in pinstripes gray and white, green for us, Milestone Media, combination of NTT Docomo, the Korean gaming consortium Hyundai Kubu, and the smoking remains of the New York Times Company. There are others, smaller stars, Crayola shades flaring and brightening, but we are the most important, the monarchs of this universe of light and color. New content blossoms on the screen, bathing us all in the bloody glow of a Google News content flare off their WhisperTech feed. They've scooped us. The posting says that new earbud devices will be released by frontal lobe before Christmas. Terabyte storage with pinline connectivity for the Oakley Micro Response classes. The technology is next-gen, allowing personal data control via pinline scans of a user's iris. Analysts predict that everything from cell phones to digital cameras will become obsolete as the full range of Oakley features becomes available. The news flare brightens and migrates towards the center of the maelstrom as visitors flock to Google and view stolen photos of the iris-scanning glasses. Janice Mbutu, our managing editor, stands at the door to her office, watching with a frown. The maelstrom's red bath dominates the newsroom, a pressing reminder that Google is beating us sucking away traffic. Behind glass walls, Bob and Casey, the heads of the burning wire, our own consumer technology feed, are screaming at their reporters, demanding they do better. Bob's face has turned almost as red as the Maelstrom. The Maelstrom's true name is Live Track 4. If you were to go downstairs to the fifth floor and pry open the server racks, you would find a sniper site logo with the words, Scry Glass. Knowledge is power, stamped on their chips in metallic orange, which would tell you that even though Bloomberg rents us the machines, it is a Google-Nielsen partnership that provides the proprietary algorithms for analyzing the net flows, which means we pay a competitor to tell us what's happening with our own content. LiveTrack 4 tracks media user data, website, feed, VOD, audio stream, TV broadcast. With Google's own net statistics gathering programs, aided by Nielsen hardware and personal data devices, 
ranging from TVs to tablets to earbuds to handsets to car radios. To say that the maelstrom keeps a finger on the pulse of media is an understatement, like calling the monsoon a little wet. The maelstrom is the pulse, the pressure, the blood-oxygen mix, the count of red cells and white, of T-cells and BAC, the screening for AIDS and hepatitis G. It is reality. Our service version of the Maelstrom displays the performance of our own content and compares it to the top 100 user traffic events in real time. My own latest news story is up in the Maelstrom, glittering near the edge of the screen. A tale of government incompetence. The harvested DNA of the checker spot butterfly, already extinct, has been destroyed through the mismanagement at the California Federal Biological Preserve Facility. The butterfly, along with 62 other species, was subjected to improper storage protocols, and now there is nothing except a little dust in vials. These samples literally blew away. My coverage of the story opens with the federal workers down on their knees in a $2 billion climate-controlled vault, with a dozen crime scene vacuums that they've borrowed from LAPD, trying to suck up a speck of butterfly that they might be able to reconstitute at some future time. In the Maelstrom, the story is a pinprick beside the suns and pulsing moons of traffic that represent other reporters' content. It doesn't compete well with the news of frontal lobe devices, or reviews of armored turtle combat, or live feeds of the Binge Purge Championships. It seems that the only people who are reading my story are the biologists I interviewed. This is not surprising. When I wrote about bribes for subdivision approvals, the only people who read the stories were county planners. When I wrote about cronyism and the selection of city water recycling technologies, the only people who read were water engineers. Still, even though no one seems to care about these stories, I am drawn to them, as though poking at the tiger of the American government will somehow make up for not being able to poke at the little cub of new divine monarch Kumsing. It is a foolish thing, a sort of Don Quixote crusade. As a consequence, my salary is the smallest in the office. Head swivel from the terminals. Look for the noise. Marty Mackley is grinning. You can thank me. He leans down and taps a button on his keyboard. Now. A new post appears in the maelstrom. A small green orb announcing itself on the Glamour Report, Scandal Monkey blog, and Marty's byline feeds. As we watch, the post absorbs pings from software clients around the world notifying the millions of people who follow his byline that he has launched a new story. I flick my tablet open, check the tags. Double DP, Redneck Hip Hop, Music News, Schadenfreude, Underage, Pedophilia. According to Mackley's story, Double DP, the Russian Mafia cowboy rapper, who, in my opinion, is not as good as the Asian pop sensation Kulop, but whom half the planet likes very much, is accused of impregnating the 14-year-old daughter of his face sculptor. Readers are starting to notice, and with their attention, Marty's green glowing news story begins to muscle for space in the maelstrom. The content star pulses, expands, and then, as though someone has thrown gasoline on it, it explodes. Double DP hits the social sites, starts getting recommended, 
sucks in more readers, more links, more clicks, and more ad dollars. Marty does a pelvic grind of victory, then waves at everyone for their attention. And that's not all, folks. He hits his keyboard again, and another story posts. Live feeds of Double's house, where it looks as though the man who popularized redneck Russians is heading out the door in a hurry. It is a surprise to see the video of the house streaming live. Most freelance paparazzi are not patient enough to sit and hope that maybe, perhaps, something interesting will happen. This looks as though Marty has stationed his own exclusive pap cams at the house to watch for something like this. We all watch as Double DP locks the door behind himself. Marty says, I thought DP deserved the courtesy of notification that the story was going live. Is he fleeing? Michaela Pla asks. Marty shrugs. We'll see. And indeed, it does look as if Double is about to do what Americans have popularized as an OJ. He is in his red Hummer, pulling out. Under the green glow of his growing story, Marty smiles. The story is getting bigger, and Marty has stationed himself perfectly for the development. Other news agencies and blogs are playing catch-up. Follow-on posts wink into existence in the maelstrom, gathering a momentum of their own as newsrooms scramble to hook our traffic. Do we have a helicopter? Janice asks. She has come out of her glass office to watch the show. Marty nods. We're moving it into position. I just bought exclusive angle view with the cops, too, so everyone's going to have to license our footage. Did you let Long Arm of the Law know about the cross-content? Yeah, they're kicking in from their budget for the helicopter. Marty sits down again, begins tapping at his keyboard. A machine gun of data entry. A low murmur comes from the tech pit. Cindy C., calling our telecom providers, locking down trunk lines to handle an anticipated data surge. She knows something that we don't, something that Marty has prepared her for. She's bringing up mirrored server farms. Marty seems unaware of the audience around him. He stops typing, stares up at the maelstrom, watching his glowing ball of content. He is the maestro of a symphony. The cluster of competing stories are growing as Gawker and Newsweek and Throb all organize themselves and respond. Our readers are clicking away from us trying to see if there's anything new in our competitors' coverage. Marty smiles, hits his publish key, and dumps a new bucket of meat into the shark tank of public interest. A video interview with the 14-year-old. On screen, she looks very young, shockingly so. She has a teddy bear. I swear I didn't plant the bear, Marty comments. She had it on her own. The girl's accusations are being mixed over Double's run for the border a kind of synth loop of accusations. And then he, and then I said, he's the only one I've ever, it sounds as if Marty has licensed some of Double's own beats for coverage of his fleeing Humvee. The video outtakes are already bouncing around YouTube and motion swallow like ping pong balls. The Maelstrom has moved Double DP to the center of the display as more and more feeds and sites point to the content. Not only is traffic up, but the post is gaining in social rank as the numbers of links and social pokes increase. How's the stock? Someone calls out. Marty shakes his head. They've locked me out from showing the display. This because whenever he drops an important story, we all beg him to show us the big picture. We all turn to Janice, 
She rolls her eyes, but she gives the nod. When Cindy finishes buying bandwidth, she unlocks the view. The maelstrom slides aside and a second window opens. All bar graphs and financial landscape. Our stock price is affected by the story's expanding traffic and expanding revenue. The stock bots have their own version of the maelstrom. They've picked up the reader traffic shift. Buy and sell decisions roll across the screen, responding to the popularity of Mackley's byline. As he feeds the story, the beast grows. More feeds pick us up. More people recommend the story to their friends. And every one of them is being subjected to our advertisers' messages, which means more revenue for us and less for everyone else. At this point, Mackley is bigger than the Super Bowl. Given that the story is tagged with double DP, it will have a targetable demographic, 13 to 24-year-olds who buy lifestyle gadgets, new music, edge clothes, first-run games, boxed hairstyles, tablet skins, and ringtones. Not only a large demographic, a valuable one. Our stock tips up a point, holds, ticks up another, We've got four different screens running now. The pap cam of Double DP, Chase Cycles with views of cops streaking after him, the chopper lifting off, and the window with the 14-year-old interviewing. The girl is saying, I really feel for him. We have a connection. We're going to get married. And there's his Hummer screaming down Santa Monica Boulevard with his song, Cowboy Banger, on the audio overlay. A new wave of social pokes hits the story. Our stock price ticks up again. Daily bonus territory. The clicks are pouring in. It's got the right combination of content. What Mackley calls three S's. Sex, stupidity, and schadenfreude. The stock ticks up again. Everyone cheers. Mackley takes a bow. We all love him. He's half the reason I can pay my own rent. Even a small newsroom bonus from his work is enough for me to live. I'm not sure how much he makes for himself when he creates an event like this. Cindy tells me that it is solid seven, baby. His byline feed is so big that he could probably go independent, but then he would not have the resources to scramble a helicopter for a chase toward Mexico. It is a symbiotic relationship. He does what he does best, and Milestone pays him like a celebrity. Janice claps her hands. All right, everyone, you've got your bonus. Now back to work. A general groan rises. Cindy cuts the big monitor away from stocks and bonuses and back to the work at hand, generating more content to light the maelstrom, to keep the newsroom glowing green with the flares of milestone coverage. Everything from reviews of Mitsubishi's 100-mile-per-gallon road cruiser to how to choose a perfect turkey for Thanksgiving. Mackley's story pulses over us as we work. He spins off smaller additional stories, updates, interactivity features, incurring his vast audience to ping back just one more time. Marty will spend the entire day in conversation with this elephant of a story that he has created, encouraging his visitors to return for just one more click. He'll give them chances to poll each other, discuss how they'd like to see DP punished, ask whether you can actually fall in love with a 14-year-old. This one will have a long life, and he will raise it like a proud father, feeding and nurturing it, helping it make its way through the rough world of the maelstrom. My own little green speck of content has disappeared. It seems that even government biologists feel for double DP. When my father was not placing foolish bets on revolution, he taught agronomy at the National Lao University. Perhaps our lives would have been different 
if he had been a rice farmer in the paddies of the capital's suburbs, instead of surrounded by intellectuals and ideas. But his karma was to be a teacher and a researcher, and so while he was increasing Lao rice production by 30%, he was also filling himself with gambler's fancies. Thoreau, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Sakharov, Mandela, Aung Sung Ki, true gamblers, all. He would say that if white South Africans could be made to feel shame, then their pretender monarch must right his ways. He claimed that Thoreau must have been Lao, the way he protested so politely. In my father's description, Thoreau was a forest monk, gone into the jungle for enlightenment, to live amongst the banyan and the climbing vines of Massachusetts, and to meditate on the nature of suffering. My father believed that he was undoubtedly some Arhat reborn. He often talked of Mr. Henry David, and in my imagination this phalang too was a large man like my father. When my father's friends visited in the dark, after the coup and the counter-coup, and after the march of Kam Singh's Chinese-supported insurgency, they would often speak of Mr. Henry David. My father would sit with his friends and students and drink black Lao coffee and smoke cigarettes, and then he would write carefully worded complaints against the government that his students would then copy and leave in public places, distribute into gutters, and stick onto walls in the dead of night. His guerrilla complaints would ask where his friends had gone and why their families were so alone. He would ask why monks were beaten on their heads by Chinese soldiers when they sat in hunger strike before the palace. Sometimes when he was drunk and when these gambles did not satisfy his risk-taking nature, he would send editorials to the newspapers. None of these were ever printed, but he was possessed with some spirit that made him think that perhaps the papers would change that his stature as a father of Lao agriculture might somehow sway the editors to commit suicide and print his complaints. It ended with my mother serving coffee to a secret police captain while two more policemen waited outside the door. The captain was very polite. He offered my father a 555 cigarette, a brand that already had become rare and contraband, and lit it for him. Then he spread the whisper sheet onto the coffee table, gently pushing aside the coffee cups and their saucers to make room for it. It was rumpled and torn, stained with mud, full of accusations against Kam Singh, unmistakable as one of my father's. My father and the policeman both sat and smoked, studying the paper silently. Finally, the captain asked, Will you stop? My father drew on his cigarette and let the smoke out slowly as he studied the whisper sheet between them. The captain said, We all respect what you have done for the Lao kingdom. I myself have family who would have starved if not for your work in the villages. He leaned forward. If you promise to stop writing these whispers and complaints, everything can be forgotten. Everything. Still, my father didn't say anything. He finished his cigarette, stubbed it out. It would be difficult to make that sort of promise, he said. The captain was surprised. You have friends who have spoken on your behalf. Perhaps you would reconsider, for their sake. My father made a little shrug. The captain spread out the rumpled whisper sheet, flattening it out more completely. Read it over. These sheets do nothing, he said. Kam Singh's dynasty will not collapse because you print a few complaints. 
Most of these are torn down before anyone reads them. They do nothing. They are pointless. He was almost begging. He looked over and saw me watching at the door. Give this up for your family, if not for your friends. I would like to say that my father said something grand, something honorable about speaking against tyranny, perhaps invoked one of his idols, Aung Sun Ki or Sakharov or Mr. Henry David and his penchant for polite protest. But he didn't say anything. He just sat with his hands on his knees, looking down at the torn whisper sheet. I think now that he must have been very afraid. Words always came easily to him, before. Instead, all he did was repeat himself. It would be difficult. The captain waited. When it became apparent that my father had nothing else to say, he put down his coffee cup and motioned for his men to come inside. They were all very polite. I think the captain even apologized to my mother as they led him out the door. We are into day three of the double DP bonanza, and the green sun glows brightly over all of us, bathing us in its soothing, profitable glow. I am working on my newest story with my frontal lobe earbuds in, shutting out everything except the work at hand. It is always a little difficult to write in one's third language, but I have my favorite singer and fellow country person Kulap whispering in my ear that love is a bird, and the work is going well. With Kulap singing to me in our childhood language, I feel very much at home. A tap on my shoulder interrupts me. I pull out my earbuds and look around. Janice, standing over me. Ong, I need to talk to you. She motions me to follow. In her office, she closes the door behind me as she goes to her desk. Sit down, Ong. She keys her tablet, scrolls through data. How are things going for you? Very well, thank you. I'm not sure if there is more that she wants me to say, but it is likely that she will tell me. Americans do not leave much to guesswork. What are you working on for your next story? She asks. I smile. I like this story. It reminds me of my father. And with Kulap's soothing voice in my ears, I have finished almost all of my research. The Bluette, a flower made famous in Mr. Henry David Thoreau's journals, is blooming too early to be pollinated. Bees do not seem to find it when it blooms in March. The scientists I interviewed blame global warming. And now the flower is in danger of extinction. I have interviewed biologists and local naturalists, and now I would like to go to Walden Pond on a pilgrimage for this bluette that may soon also be bottled in a Federal Reserve laboratory with its techs and clean suits and their crime scene vacuums. When I finish describing the story, Janice looks at me as if I am crazy. I can tell that she thinks I'm crazy because I can see it on her face, and also because she tells me, You're fucking crazy! Americans are very direct. It's difficult to keep face when they yell at you. Sometimes I think that I have adapted to America. I have been here for five years now, ever since I came from Thailand on a scholarship. But at times like this, all I can do is smile and try not to cringe as they lose their face and yell and rant. My father was once struck in the face with an official shoe, and he did not show his anger. But Janice is American, and she is very angry. There's no way I'm going to authorize a junket like that. I try to smile past her anger, and then remember that Americans don't see an apologetic smile in the same way that a Lao would. I stop smiling and make my face look something earnest, I hope. 
The story is very important, I say. The ecosystem isn't adapting correctly to the changing climate. Instead, it has lost, I grope for the word, synchronicity. The scientists think that the flower can be saved, but only if they import a bee that is available in Turkey. They think it can replace the function of the native bee population, and they think that it will not be too disruptive. Flowers and Turkish bees. Yes, this is an important story. Do they let the flower go extinct? Or try to keep the famous flower, but alter the environment of Walden Pond? I think your readers will think it's very interesting. More interesting than that? She points through her glass wall at the maelstrom, at the throbbing green sun of Double DP, who has now barricaded himself in a Mexican hotel and has taken a pair of fans hostage. You know how many clicks we're getting? She asks. We're exclusive. Marty's got double trust and is going in for an interview tomorrow, assuming the Mexicans don't just raid it with commandos. We've got people clicking back every couple minutes just to look at Marty's blog about his preparations to go in. The glowing globe not only dominates the maelstrom screen, it washes everything else out. If we look at the stock bots, everyone who doesn't have protection under our corporate umbrella has been hurt by the loss of eyeballs. Even the frontal lobe Oakley story has been swallowed. Three days of completely dominating the maelstrom has been very profitable for us. Now Marty's showing his viewers how he will wear a flak jacket in case the Mexican commandos attack while he's discussing the nature of true love with DP. And he has another exclusive interview with a mother ready to post as well. Cindy has been editing the footage and telling us all how disgusted she is with the whole thing. The woman apparently drove her daughter to DP's mansion for a midnight pool party, alone. Perhaps some people are tired of DP and wish to see something else, I suggest. Don't shoot yourself in the foot with a flower story, Ong. Even Pradeep's cooking journey through Ladakh gets more viewers than this stuff you're writing. She looks as though she will say more, but then she simply stops. It seems as if she's considering her words. It's uncharacteristic. She normally speaks before her thoughts are arranged. Ong, I like you, she says. I make myself smile at this, but she continues. I hired you because I had a good feeling about you. I didn't have a problem with clearing the visas to let you stay in the country. You're a good person. You write well. But you're averaging less than a thousand pings on your byline feed. She looks down at her tablet, then back up at me. You need to up your average. You've got almost no readers selecting you for page one. And even when they do subscribe to your feed, they're putting it in the third tier. Spinach reading. I supply. What? Mr. Mackey calls it spinach reading. When people feel like they should do something with virtue, like eat their spinach, they click to me. Or else read Shakespeare. I blush, suddenly embarrassed. I do not mean to imply that my work is of the same caliber as a great poet. I want to correct myself, but I'm too embarrassed. So instead I shut up and sit in front of her, blushing. She regards me. Yes, well, that's a problem. Look, I respect what you do. You're obviously very smart. Her eyes scan her tablet. The butterfly thing you wrote was actually pretty interesting. Yes? I make myself smile again. It's just that no one wants to read these stories. I try to protest, but you hired me to write the important stories. The stories about politics and the government to continue the traditions of the old newspapers. I remember what you said when you hired me. Yeah, well, she looks away. I was thinking more about a good scandal.
The checker spot is a scandal. That butterfly is now gone. She sighs. No, it's not a scandal. Just a depressing story. No one reads a depressing story, at least not more than once, and no one subscribes to a depressing byline feed. A thousand people do. A thousand people, she laughs. We aren't some Laotian community weblog. We're Milestone, and we're competing for clicks with them. She waves outside, indicating the maelstrom. Your stories don't last longer than half a day. They never get social poked by anyone except a fringe. She shakes her head. Christ, I don't even know who your demographic is. Centenarian hippies? Some federal bureaucrats? The numbers just don't justify the amount of time you spend on stories. What stories do you wish me to write? I don't know. Anything. Product reviews. News you can use. Just not any more of this we-regret-to-inform-you-of-bad-news stuff. If there isn't something a reader can do about the damn butterfly, then there's no point in telling them about it. It just depresses people, and it depresses your numbers. We don't have enough numbers from Marty? She laughs at that. You remind me of my mother. Look, I don't want to cut you, but if you can't start pulling at least a 50,000 daily average, I won't have any choice. Our group median is way down in comparison to other teams, and when evaluations come around, we look bad. I'm up against Nguyen at the Tech and Toys pool, and Pan and Yoga and Spirituality, and no one wants to read about how the world's going to shit. Go find me some stories that people want to read. She says a few more things, words that I think are meant to make me feel inspired and eager, and then I'm standing outside the door, once again facing the maelstrom. The truth is that I have never written popular stories. I am not a popular story writer. I am earnest. I am slow. I do not move at the speed these Americans seem to love. Find a story that people want to read. I can write some follow-up to Mackley, to Double DP, perhaps assist with sidebars in his main piece, but somehow I suspect that the readers will know I'm faking it. Marty sees me standing outside of Janice's office. He comes over. She giving you a hard time about your numbers? I do not write the correct sort of stories. Yeah, you're an idealist. We both stand there for a moment, meditating on the nature of idealism. Even though he is very American, I like him because he is sensitive to people's hearts. People trust him. Even WDP trusts him. Though Marty blew his name over every news tablet's front page, Marty has a good heart. J.D., I like him. I think that he's genuine. Look, Ong, he says, I like what you do. He puts his hand around my shoulder. For a moment, I think he's about to try to rub my head with affection and I have to force myself not to wince. But he's sensitive and instead takes his hand away. Look, Ong, we both know you're terrible at this kind of work. We're in the news business here, and you're just not cut out for it. My visa says I have to remain employed. Yeah, Janice is a bitch for that. Look, he pauses. I've got this thing with WDP going down in Mexico, but I've got another story brewing, an exclusive. I've already got my bonus, anyway, and it should push up your average. I do not think I can write WDP sidebars. He grins. It's not that, and it's not charity. You're actually a perfect match. Is it about government mismanagement? He laughs, but I think he's not really laughing at me. No, he pauses, smiles, 
It's Kulap, an interview. I suck in my breath. My fellow country person here in America. She came out during the purge as well. She was doing a movie in Singapore when the tanks moved, and so she was not trapped. She was already very popular all over Asia, and when Kam Singh turned the country into a black hole, the world took note. Now she is popular here in America as well. Very beautiful. And she remembers our country before it went into darkness. My heart is pounding. Marty goes on, She's agreed to do an exclusive with me, but you even speak her language, so I think she'd agree to switch off. He pauses, looks serious. I've got a good history with Kulap. She doesn't give interviews to just anyone. I did a lot of exposure stories about her when Laos was going to hell. Got her a lot of good press. This is a special favor already, so don't fuck it up. I shake my head. No, I will not. I press my palms together and touch them to my forehead in a knop of appreciation. I will not fuck it up. I made another knop. He laughs. Don't bother with that polite stuff. Janice will cut off your balls to increase the stock price. But we're the guys in the trenches. We stick together, right? In the morning, I make a pot of strong coffee with condensed milk. I boil rice noodle soup and add bean sprouts and chilies and vinegar and a warm loaf of French bread that I buy from a Vietnamese bakery a few blocks away. With a new mix of collapsed music from DJ Dow streaming over my stereo, I sit down at my little kitchen table, pour my coffee from its press pot, and open my tablet. The tablet is a wondrous creation. In Laos, the paper was still a paper. Physical, static, and empty of everything except the official news. Real news in our new divine kingdom did not come from newspapers, or from television, or from handsets, or earbuds. It did not come from the net, or feeds, unless you trusted your neighbor not to look over your shoulder at an internet cafe, and if you knew that there were no secret police sitting beside you, or an owner who would be able to identify you when they came around asking you about the person who used the workstation over there to communicate with the outside world. Real news came from whispered rumor, rated according to the trust you accorded the whisperer. Were they family? Did they have long history with you? Did they have anything to gain by the sharing? My father and his old classmates trusted one another. He trusted some of his students as well. I think that this is why the security police came for him in the end. One of his trusted friends or students also whispered news to official friends. Perhaps Mr. Inthachak, or Sam Vang, perhaps another. It is impossible to peer into the blackness of that history and guess who told true stories and in which direction. In any case, it was my father's karma to be taken, so perhaps it does not matter who did the whispering. But before then, before the news of my father flowed up to official ears, none of the real news flowed towards the Lao TV or the Vientiane Times, which meant that when the protests happened and my father came through the door, with blood on his face from the baton blows, we could read as much as we wanted about the 3,000 schoolchildren who had sung the national anthem to our new divine monarch. While my father lay in bed, delirious with pain, the papers told us that China had signed a rubber contract that would triple revenue for Luang Namtha province and that Nam Thien Dam was now earning $22.5 billion per year in electricity fees to Thailand. But there were no bloody batons, there were no dead monks, and there was no Mercedes-Benz burning in the river as it floated toward Cambodia. Real news came on the wings of rumor, 
stole into our house at midnight, sat with us and sipped coffee and fled before the call of roosters could break the stillness. It was in the dark, over a burning cigarette that you learned Villafon had disappeared, or that Mr. Sang's wife had been beaten as a warning. Real news was too valuable to risk in public. Here in America, my page glows with many news feeds, flickers at me in video windows, pours in at me over broadband. It is a waterfall of communication. As my personal news page opens, my feeds arrange themselves, sorting according to the priorities and tag categories that I've set, a mix of Myung Lao news, Lao refugee blogs, and the chatting of a few close friends from Thailand and the American college where I attended on a human relief scholarship. On my second page, and my third, I keep the general news, the arrangements of Milestone, the Bangkok Post, the Phnom Penh Express, the news chosen by editors. But by the time I've finished with my own selections, I don't often have time to click through the headlines that these earnest news editors select for the mythical general reader. In any case, I know far better than they what I want to read, and with my keyword and tag scans, I can unearth stories and discussions that a news agency would never think to provide. Even if I cannot see into the black hole itself, I can slip along its edges, divine news from its fringe. I search for tags like Vianchen, Laos, Lao, Kam Sing, China-Lao Friendship, Korat, Golden Triangle, Hmong Independence, Lao PDR, My Father's Name. Only those of us who are Lao exiles from the March Purge really read these blogs. It is much as when we lived in the capital. The blogs are the rumors that we used to whisper to one another. Now we publish our whispers over the net and join mailing lists instead of secret coffee groups. But it is the same. It is family, as much as any of us now have. On the Maelstrom, the tags for Laos don't even register. Our tags bloomed brightly for a little while, while there were still guerrilla students uploading content from their handsets, and the images were lurid and shocking. But then the phone lines went down and the country fell into its black hole, and now it is just us, this small network that functions outside the country. A headline from Jumbo Blog catches my eye. I open the site. My tablet fills with the colorful image of a three-wheeled taxi of my childhood. I often come here. It is a note of comfort. Lao Friend posts that some people, maybe a whole family, have swum the Mekong and made it into Thailand. He isn't sure if they were accepted as refugees or if they were sent back. It's not an official news piece, more the idea of a news piece. Some pa boy doesn't believe it, but Kam Chan contends that the rumor is true, heard from someone who has a sister married to an Isan border guard in the Thai army, so we cling to it, wonder about it, guess where these people came from, wonder if, against all odds, it could be one of ours, a brother, a sister, a cousin, a father. After an hour, I close the tablet. It's foolish to read any more. It only brings up memories. Worrying about the past is foolish. Lao PDR is gone. To wish otherwise is suffering. The clerk at Novotel's front desk is expecting me. A hotel staffer with a key guides me to a private elevator bank that whisks us up into the smog and heights. The elevator doors open to a small entryway with a thick mahogany door. The staffer steps back into the elevator and disappears, leaving me standing in this strange airlock. Presumably, I am being examined by collapsed security.
The mahogany door opens, and a smiling black man, who is forty centimeters taller than I, and who has muscles that ripple like snakes, smiles and motions me inside. He guides me through Kulap's sanctuary. She keeps the heat high, almost tropical, and fountains rush everywhere around. The flat is musical with water. I unbutton my collar in the humidity. I was expecting air conditioning, and instead I am sweltering. It's almost like home. And then she's in front of me, and I can hardly speak. She is beautiful and more. It is intimidating to stand before someone who exists in film and music, but has never existed before you in the flesh. She's not as stunning as she is in the movies, but there's more life, more presence. The movies lose that quality about her. I make a knop of greeting, pressing my hands together, touching my forehead. She laughs at this, takes my hand and shakes it American style. You're lucky Marty likes you so much, she says. I don't like interviews. I can barely find my voice. Yes, I only have a few questions. Oh no, don't be shy, she laughs again, and doesn't release my hand. Pulls me toward her living room. Marty told me about you. You need help with your ratings. He helped me once too. She's frightening. She is of my people, but she has adapted better to this place than I have. She seems comfortable here. She walks differently. Smiles differently. She is an American, with perhaps some flavor of our country, but nothing of our roots. It's obvious, and strangely disappointing. In her movies, she holds herself so well, and now she sits down on her couch and sprawls with her feet kicked out in front of her, not caring at all. I'm embarrassed for, her, and I'm glad I don't have my camera set up yet. She kicks her feet up on the couch. I can't help but to be shocked. She catches my expression and smiles. You're worse than my parents, fresh off the boat. I am sorry. She shrugs. Don't worry about it. I spent half my life here, growing up, different country, different rules. I'm embarrassed. I try not to laugh with the tension I feel. I just have some interview questions. I say. Go ahead. She sits up and arranges herself for the video stand that I set up. I begin. When the March purge happened, you were in Singapore. She nods. That's right. We were finishing the Tiger and the Ghost. What was your first thought when it happened? Did you want to go back? Were you surprised? She frowns. Turn off the camera. When it's off, she looks at me with pity. This isn't the way to get clicks. No one cares about an old revolution. Not even my fans. She stands abruptly and calls to the green jungle of her flat. Terrell. The big black man appears, smiling and lethal, looming over me. He is very frightening. The movies I grew up with had Falang like him, terrifying large black men whom our heroes had to overcome. Later, when I arrived in America, it was different, and I found out that the Falang and the black people. Don't like the way we show them in our movies. Much like when I watch their Vietnam movies and see the ugly way Lao freedom fighters behave, not real at all, portrayed like animals. But still, I cannot help but cringe when Terrell looks at me. Kulap says we're going out, Terrell. Make sure you tip off some of the pap cams. We're going to give them a show.
I don't understand, I say. You want clicks, don't you? Yes, but, she smiles, you don't need an interview. You need an event. She looks me over, and better clothes. She nods to her security man. Terrell, dress him up. A flashbulb frenzy greets us as we come out of the tower. Pap cams everywhere. Chase cycles revving, and Terrell and three others of his people guiding us through the press to the limousine, shoving cameras aside with a violence and power that are utterly unlike the careful pity he showed when we selected a Gucci suit for me to wear. Collap looks properly surprised at the crowd and the shouting reporters, but not nearly as surprised as I am. And then we're in the limo, speeding out of the tower's roundabout as papcams follow us. Collap crouches before the car's onboard tablet, keying in passcodes. She is very pretty, wearing a black dress that brushes her thighs and thin straps that caress her smooth, bare shoulders. I feel as if I am in a movie. She taps more keys. A screen glows, showing the taillights of our car, the view from pursuing pap cams. You know, I haven't dated anyone in three years, she asks. Yes, I know from your website biography, she grins. And now it looks like I've found one of my countrymen. But we're not on a date, I protest. Of course we are, she smiles again. I'm going out on a supposedly secret date with a cute and mysterious Lao boy. And look at all those pap camps chasing after us, wondering where we're going and what we're going to do. She keys in another code. And now we can see live footage of the paparazzi, as viewed from the tail of her limo. She grins. My fans like to see what life is like for me. I can almost imagine what the maelstrom looks like right now. There will still be Marty's story, but now a dozen other sites will be lighting up, and in the center of that, Collapse's own view of the excitement pulling in her fans, who will want to know, direct from her, what's going on. She holds up a mirror, checks herself, and then she smiles into her smartphone's camera. Hi, everyone. Looks like my cover's blown. Just thought I should let you know that I'm on a lovely date with a lovely man. I'll let you all know how it goes, promise. She points the camera at me. I stare at it stupidly. She laughs. Say hi and goodbye, Ong. Hi, and goodbye. She laughs again, waves into the camera. Love you all. Hope you have as good a night as I'm going to have. And then she cuts the clip and punches a code to launch the video to her website. It is a bit of nothing. Not a news story, not a scoop even, and yet, when she opens another window on her tablet, showing her own mini version of the Maelstrom, I can see her site lighting up with traffic. Her version of the Maelstrom isn't as powerful as what we have at Milestone, but still, it is an impressive window into the data that is relevant to collapsed tags. What's your feed's byline? she asks. Let me see if we can get your traffic bumped up. Are you serious? Marty Mackley did more than this for me. I told him I'd help, she laughs. Besides, we wouldn't want you to get sent back to the black hole, would we? You know about the black hole? I can't help doing a double take. Her smile is almost sad. You think just because I put my feet up on the furniture that I don't care about my aunts and uncles back home? That I don't worry about what's happening? I... She shakes her head. You're so fresh off the boat. Do you use the Jumbo Cafe? 
I break off. It seems too unlikely. She leans close. My handle is Lao Friend. What's yours? Little Zhang. I thought Lao Friend was a boy. She just laughs. I lean forward. Is it true that your family made it out? She nods. For certain. A general in the Thai army is a fan. He tells me everything. They have a listening post, and sometimes they send scouts across. It's almost as if I am home. We go to a tiny Laotian restaurant where everyone recognizes her and falls over her, and the owners simply lock out the paparazzi when they become too intrusive. We spend the evening unearthing memories of Vian Chen. We discover that we both favor the same rice noodle cart on Kam Kong, that she used to sit on the banks of the Mekong and wish that she were a fisherman, that we went to the same waterfalls outside of the city on weekends, that it is impossible to find good Dum Mak Hung anywhere outside of the country. She is a good companion, very alive, strange in her American ways, but still with a good heart. Periodically, we click photos of one another and post them to her site, feeding the voyeurs. And then... We are in the limo again, and the paparazzi are all around us. I have the strange feeling of fame. Flashbulbs everywhere, shouted questions. I feel proud to be beside this beautiful, intelligent woman who knows so much more than any of us about the situation inside our homeland. Back in the car, she has me open a bottle of champagne and pour two glasses while she opens the maelstrom and studies the results of our date. She has reprogrammed it to watch my byline feed ranking as well. You've got 20,000 more readers than you did yesterday, she says. I beam. She keeps reading the results. Someone already did a scan on your face, she toasts me with a glass. You're famous. We clink glasses. I am flushed with wine and happiness. I will have Janice's average clicks. It's as though a bodhisattva has come down from heaven to save my job. In my mind, I offer thanks to Marty for arranging this, for his generous nature. Kulap leans close to her screen, watching the flaring content. She opens another window, starts to read. She frowns. What the fuck do you write about? I draw back, surprised. Government stories mostly, I shrug. Sometimes environment stories. Like what? I'm working on a story right now about global warming and Henry David Thoreau. Aren't we done with that? I'm confused. Done with what? The limo jostles us as it makes a turn, moves down Hollywood Boulevard, letting the cycles rev around us like schools of fish. They're snapping pictures at the side of the limo, snapping at us. Through the tinting, they're like fireflies, smaller flares than even my stories in the maelstrom. I mean, isn't that an old story? She sips her champagne. Even America's reducing emissions now. Everyone knows it's a problem. She taps her couch's armrest. The carbon tax on my limo is tripled, even with the hybrid engine. Everyone agrees it's a problem. We're going to fix it. What's there to write about? She is an American. Everything that is good about them, their optimism, their willingness to charge ahead to make their own future, and everything that is bad about them, their strange ignorance, their unwillingness to believe that they must behave as other than children. No, it's not done, I say. It is worse, worse every day. 
and the changes we make seem to have little effect, maybe too little, or maybe too late. It's getting worse. She shrugs. That's not what I read. I try not to show my exasperation. Of course it's not what you read. I wave at the screen. Look at the clicks on my feed. People want happy stories. Want fun stories. Not stories like I write. So instead, we all write what you will read. Which is nothing. Still. No. I make a chopping motion with my hand. We news people are very smart monkeys. If you will give us your so lovely eyeballs and your click-throughs, we will do whatever you like. We will write good news and news you can use. News you can shop to. News with the three S's. We will tell you how to have better sex or eat better or look more beautiful or feel happier or how to meditate. Yes, so enlightened. I make a face. If you want a walking meditation in double DP, we will give it to you. She starts to laugh. Why are you laughing at me? I snap. I'm not joking. She waves a hand. I know, I know. But what you just said, double... She shakes her head, still laughing. Never mind. I lapse into silence. I want to go on to tell her of my frustrations... But now I am embarrassed at my loss of composure. I have no face. I didn't used to be like this. I used to control my emotions. But now I am an American, as childish and unruly as Janice. And Kulap laughs at me. I control my anger. I think I want to go home, I say. I don't wish to be on a date anymore. She smiles and reaches over to touch my shoulder. Don't be that way. A part of me is telling me that I am a fool, that I am reckless and foolish for walking away from this opportunity. But there is something else, something about this frenzied hunt for page views and click-throughs and ad revenue that suddenly feels unclean, as if my father is with us in the car, disapproving, asking if he posted his complaints about his missing friends for the sake of clicks. I want to get out, I hear myself say. I do not wish to have your clicks. But, I look up at her. I want to get out. Now. Here? She makes a face of exasperation, then shrugs. It's your choice. Yes, thank you. She tells her driver to pull over. We sit in stiff silence. I will send your suit back to you, I say. She gives me a sad smile. It's all right. It's a gift. This makes me feel worse, even more humiliated for refusing her generosity. But still, I get out of the limo. Cameras are clicking at me from all around. This is my 15 minutes of fame. This moment when all of Collapse fans focus on me for a few seconds, their flashbulbs popping. I begin to walk home as paparazzi shout questions. 15 minutes later, I am indeed alone. I consider calling a cab, but then I decide I prefer the night. Prefer to walk by myself through this city that never walks anywhere. On a street corner, I buy a pupusa and gamble on the Mexican lottery, because I like the ticket's laser images of their Day of the Dead. It seems an echo of the Buddha's urging to remember that we all become corpses. I buy three tickets, and one of them is a winner. One hundred dollars that I can redeem at any Telmex kiosk. 
I take this as a good sign. Even if my luck is obviously gone with my work, and even if the girl Kulap was not the bodhisattva that I thought, still, I feel lucky, as though my father is walking with me down this cool Los Angeles street in the middle of the night, the two of us together again, me with a pupusa and a winning lottery ticket, him with an odd-daying cigarette, his quiet gambler's smile. In a strange way, I feel that he is blessing me. And so instead of going home, I go back to the newsroom. My hits are up when I arrive. Even now, in the middle of the night, a tiny slice of Kulap's fan base is reading about checker spot butterflies and American government incompetence. In my country, this story would not exist. A censor would kill it instantly. Here, it glows green, increasing and decreasing in size as people click. A lonely thing, flickering amongst the much larger content flares of Intel processor releases, guides to low-fat recipes, photos of lolcats, and episodes of Survivor Antarctica. The wash of light and color is very beautiful. In the center of the maelstrom, the green sun of the double DP story glows, surges larger. DP is doing something. Maybe he's surrendering. Maybe he's murdering his hostages. Maybe his fans have thrown up a human wall to protect him. My story snuffs out as reader attention shifts. I watch the maelstrom a little longer, then go to my desk and make a phone call. A rumpled hairy man answers, rubbing at a sleepy, puffy face. I apologize for the late hour, and then pepper him with questions while I record the interview. He is silly-looking and wild-eyed. He has spent his life living as if he were Thoreau, thinking deeply on the forest monk and following the man's careful paths through what woods remain, walking amongst birch and maple bluets. He is a fool, but an earnest one. I can't find a single one, he tells me. Thoreau could find thousands at this time of year. There were so many he didn't even have to look for them. He says... I'm so glad you called. I tried sending out press releases, but... He shrugs. I'm glad you'll cover it. Otherwise, it's just us hobbyists talking to each other. I smile and nod and take notes of his sincerity. This strange wild creature, the sort that everyone will dismiss. His image is bad for video. His words are not good for text. He has no quotes that encapsulate what he sees. It is all couched in the jargon of naturalists and biology. With time, I could find another, someone who looks attractive or who can speak well, but all I have is this one hairy man, disheveled and foolish, senile with passion over a flower that no longer exists. I work through the night, polishing the story. When my colleagues pour through the door at 8 a.m., it is almost done. Before I can even tell Janice about it, she comes to me. She fingers my clothing and grins. Nice suit. She pulls up a chair and sits beside me. We all saw you with Kulap. Your hits went way up. She nods at my screen. Writing up what happened? No, it's a private conversation. But everyone wants to know why you got out of the car. I had someone from the Financial Times call me about splitting up the hits for a tell-all if you'll be interviewed. You wouldn't even need to write up the piece. It's a tempting thought. Easy hits. 
many click-throughs, ad revenue bonuses. Still, I shake my head. We did not talk about things that are important for others to hear. Janice stares at me as if I am crazy. You're not in the position to bargain, Ong. Something happened between the two of you. Something people want to know about. And you need the clicks. Just tell us what happened on your date. I was not on a date. It was an interview. Well then, publish the fucking interview and get your average up. No, that is for Kulap to post, if she wishes. I have something else. I show Janice my screen. She leans forward. Her mouth tightens as she reads. For once, her anger is cold. Not the explosion of noise and rage that I expect. Bluettes? She looks at me. You need hits, and you give them flowers in Walden Pond? I would like to publish this story. No! Hell no! This is just another story like your butterfly story, and your road contract story, and your congressional budget story. You won't get a damn click. It's pointless. No one will ever read it. This is news. Marty went out on a limb for you. She presses her lips together, reining in her anger. Fine. It's up to you, Ong. If you want to destroy your life over Thoreau and flowers, it's your funeral. We can't help you if you won't help yourself. Bottom line, you need 50,000 readers or I'm sending you back to the third world. We looked at each other, two gamblers evaluating one another, deciding who is betting and who is bluffing. I click the publish button. The story launches itself onto the net, announcing itself to the feeds. A minute later, a tiny new sun glows in the maelstrom. Together, Janice and I watch the green sparks as it flickers on the screen. Readers turn to the story, start to ping it and share it amongst themselves, start to register hits on the page. The post grows slightly. My father gambled on Thoreau. I am my father's son. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Paolo Bajigalubis. Paolo, thank you so much for letting Starship Sova use this story. And Jeff, what can I say? Fantastic. More work by Jeff Mincelli coming as well. So do look out for that. So there, there's your kind of reason why, you know what I mean? If, if that's not a, a good example of why Starship Sova is doing what it's doing and why it's good at what it's doing, it can get stories like that and play them to like an amazing quality. So I'm going to hand you over to our fiction crawler, Mr. Matthew Sanborn Smith. Like I say, I just, I roped in Matt, you know, and, and I hope he was more than happy to kind of help out, you know what I mean? And I got Matt to kind of spread, spread the love. He came up with this blog post and I says, Matt, we really need to get that on audio. You know, it's fantastic. To be quite honest, it's great. You know, and Matt's only had like <laughs> three or four hours after he came in from work yesterday. Do you know what I mean? I'm recording this, the date's going out. This has all come about, honestly, so quick. And I, again, I appreciate Matt getting in there and, and helping out. And I hope everyone kind of will help out and spread the word and try and get, you know, we're nominated. But Matt, tell us about your ideas. 
Hello, my fellow Sofanauts. This is Matthew Sanborn-Smith. Because of a rewording of the rules, the Starship Sofa podcast could be eligible for nomination for the best fanzine Hugo. Wait, could be? The truth is, we can't know for sure until we get in somebody's face and force the issue by actually scoring nominations from lots and lots of people. You happen to be one of lots and lots of people. Info on how to nominate is, I hope, in the show notes. Why should I do that? Because... You didn't know it until you got to the end of this sentence, but Starship Sofa is your favorite podcast. You think it's because the sofa has given you content from many of the greatest writers in speculative fiction. Moorcock, Gaiman, Wolf, Haldeman, Shepard, Bryn, Seller, Kazmatka, Bacigalupi, Chang. Jesus, I can't even name them all here. Authors note in that last sentence, Jesus was an exclamation, not a speculative fiction writer who has been featured on the Starship Sofa, though he has starred in a couple of the stories. You think it's because the podcast has the best stable of narrators in the podosphere, hands down. So many, in fact, the Sofanauts Awards ballot could be 15 names long in the best narrator category and still not have enough room for all the fantastic ones. You think it's because those folks have read so many award-nominated and award-winning stories. You think maybe I'm going to say it's because you haven't had to pay a flippin' cent to get all of that, plus interviews, essays, reviews, poetry, science news, beautiful art, and probably a couple of other things, too. You'd be wrong. Well, okay, maybe you'd be partly right. But one of the things I love about The Sofa is that it's a podcast of the fans, by the fans, and for the fans. It's like all those Little Rascals films where the gang puts on a show for the other kids in the neighborhood, and let's face it, for themselves. That's what The Sofanauts do every week. Aside from Tony and those generous authors, every single person involved started out as a fan of the show before pitching in to lend a hand. The Sofa's like a kick-ass pirate ship that picks up eager crew members in every port. Want to join in? You can. Just offer up your talent and you're in the show. It's an awesome party that we throw ourselves every week. You're happy just listening but want to meet and chat with the folks who put together the show? Head to the forums. We're like an enormous Mormon family who takes in strays and orphans by the hundreds. We're there to cheer each other's successes and commiserate during the low points. How many babies have we had since the show started? We support each other's projects, enjoy each other's work, and many of us have become pen pals and co-twits outside of the show as well. Tony's that awesome big brother who got his license first and drives motorcycles. Diane is my beloved sister. Fred is the eccentric uncle we keep in the attic. Larry's the creepy cousin who keeps to the basement, where the bodies are. Amy, Grant, JJ, Skeet, Skelly, Allie, Julio, Fabio, Church, and the Assassin, you're all at the picnic. Josh, Judy, Dee, Kate, Phil, Christy, Elke, Steve, and all of you who are shaking your fists at me because I didn't mention you by name, you're there too. One of the greatest programs out there comes together from all over the globe every single week because of nothing but love. And whether you're a contributor or a listener, you're a part of that. If that's not a fanzine, there's no such thing as a fanzine. If the sofa never wins an award, it will still have achieved something unique in all of science fiction history. It will have been our home. But let's win an award anyway. Please tell all your speculative fiction friends, cronies, and neighbors, spread the word, tweet about it, and hit me up on Twitter at UpWithGravity so we can link up and spread the love together. Link to the spookily similar post on my blog or the other nifty posts you'll find there, and let me know if you've written one yourself so I can add it. Tell us your own stories about what the show has meant to you. Finally, think of all that the Starship Sofa podcast has given you and vote your gut. Let's give a Hugo to ourselves. Isn't that lovely? Do you know what I mean? That just like, gets me. Wow. Matt, thank you so much.
So that's it. This show is is a call to arms, for want of a better word. Let's get Starship Sofa nominated for a Hugo Award Best Fanzine. If you went, I'm just rounding up and just saying exactly what I said, you know, a while ago. If you went to last year's Worldcon, you're entitled to vote. I know Amy H. Sturgis has put in her vote, and she says, you know, she's, <laughs> she might not have done it. No, she tells me that she has voted for Starship Sofa for Best Fanzine. If you went last year, please consider Starship Sofa, Best Fanzine. If you are going to AussieCon or a supporting member, please, please, please think about Starship Sofa, Best Fanzine, or again, spread the word. So that's it. Please spread the word. Vote if you possibly can. Let's make our show a Hugo winning show. Links to everything that you've heard in today's show will be on the front of the website, so you can just pop over there. And if I've forgot a link, you know, get involved. Tell us I forgot a link and I'll certainly put it up. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a valuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.